0: The following podcast is entirely a work of fan fiction. It is unofficial, unaffiliated, and unauthorized. Neither the podcast nor any individual involved in its production is now nor has ever been in any way associated with HBO, Game of Thrones, George R.R. R. Martin, or the Song of Ice and Fire book series. The podcast was, is now, and shall always be entirely without profit. Neither the podcast directly nor its makers indirectly generate or receive any form of revenue or financial restitution that might otherwise accrue to the rightful copyright holders. The following podcast is entirely a work of fan fiction. We hope you enjoy it.
1: Cersei watches with satisfaction as a craftsman fits an enormous scorpion to the battlements of the Red Keep. The craftsman finished, Euron shoves him aside and eagerly loads a five-foot steel bolt and settles a particularly fearsome-looking cloud in his sights. He pulls the trigger, and the mechanism slams home. The bolt rockets up and out over King's Landing, and disappears into the distance. (laughs) Euron's eyes sparkle with childish glee as he collects another bolt. Cersei holds up a hand to stop him, when she spots Kyburn approaching, with a scroll in hand. Your Grace... A
2: raven has just arrived from our friend
1: in the north. For a second, Cersei looks uncertain, as though she isn't sure she wants to hear what's about to come. Finally, Cersei takes the scroll and reads its contents.
2: Gone? Gone where? Perhaps we should wait and trust in the Night King and his army to do our work for us. No.
3: I paid for four, and I expect my money's worth. Tell him the other two had better be worth the coin. Someone important. Someone they'll miss. Very good, Your Grace. I want to
4: know as soon as it's done. Of course, Your Grace. You women do enjoy your little intrigues, don't you?
3: Well, you men know nothing but brute
5: force. And only a queen
2: appreciates the
1: advantage of utilising both simultaneously. Cersei inclines her head in appreciation. Kyburn bows and departs.
4: I don't like that one. He reminds me of the rats. You find scurrying about in a hold on a long voyage. But we should catch him in a sack and throw him in the sea. He's loyal. Loyalty is more precious than gold these days. He's loyal because you've given him an easy life. You feed him, you clothe him, and you let him play with his dead things down in the dungeon.
3: People are, on occasion, motivated by things other than their own immediate self interest. I know that's difficult for a mercenary like you to comprehend.
4: Mercenary? Not I. Even mercenaries live by a code, and a man is never truly free so long as he is bound by a set of rules, even if they're his own. Right before I threw my brother Baelon to his death, I told him, I am the storm. A storm has no pattern to predict, no consistency to depend upon. A storm can't be intimidated, can't be bargained
1: with. Euron places a hand on Cersei's stomach.
4: Can never be tamed.
3: You needn't worry. I don't expect you to answer his cries in the middle of the night, or sing him lullabies when he won't sleep. Robert certainly never did any of that.
4: What about the Kingslayer? Was he not
1: a doting uncle? Circe pretends as though she didn't hear Euron's taunt.
3: I only expect one thing from you. To protect our son's birthright.
4: For our son to be a prince, his father must be a king.
3: Not the most elaborate proposal of marriage I've ever received. Though perhaps the most romantic, sad as that is.
4: Ah, yes. The great Tywin Lannister, master manipulator.
3: My father accomplished more in one lifetime than most men could in a thousand.
4: I met no disrespect. From everything I've heard, I think he and I would have got along splendidly. What could possibly have given you that idea?
1: Euron cups Cersei's cheek in his hand.
4: He understood that all relationships are transactional, and to get what you want in life... You need capital to trade with.
1: Euron runs his hand down to Cersei's breast. And he understood that capital can take many forms. Euron's hand keeps going, finally returning to Cersei's stomach. I'm father to a prince,
4: consort to a queen. It's only right I be made king.
3: It really did prick your ego, didn't it? When that farmer didn't know you. You act as though you don't care about anything, but I know the kind of man you really are, and I know it well. The mighty Kraken, wounded by the opinion of the sheep."
1: Euron's hand shoots up, cupped and ready to wrap around Cersei's throat, but he stops himself at the last possible second. His hand hovers in the air, inches from her skin. Cersei meets his death stare, defiant. She places her hands on her stomach, leads Euron's eyes down with her own. Euron considers the sight for a long minute, then steps back. When my
4: fleet arrives, I expect to greet your new army with a crown upon my
1: head. Euron kisses Cersei's forehead, then walks past her towards the steps of the battlements. He stops, furrows his brow as though a realization has just dawned.
4: Now I hear myself say it out loud, I wonder if perhaps I am a mercenary after all.
1: John rides Rhaegal low over the snow-covered ground, somewhere above the land of always winter. Looking to his left, he can just about see Daenerys on Drogon. Daenerys surveys the land, rushing away beneath Drogon's wings. The landscape is utterly without feature. Mountains upon mountains, a vast white canvas stretching away in every direction. Nothing grows here. Nothing lives. Daenerys pulls her furs tight against the icy air biting at her skin and leans flat against Drogon, welcoming the heat that radiates through his leathery hide. Every table in the Great Hall is packed with soldiers dressed for battle, excepting only their armour. As soon as one group has finished, they rotate out and are replaced with another. Food is served from the Lord's Table. Diners queuing up with their plates and holding them out for serving girls to pile high with bread and a variety of meats. The food is simple, unadorned fare, but there's more than enough for every man to fill his belly three times over. Davos, Tormund, Podrick and Ed queue at the barrels of water, their tankards in hand. Tormund fills his cup, turns up his lip in disgust. Water!
4: Water! How's a man supposed to get drunk on water? They'd
1: probably prefer you don't get
4: drunk at all before a bat. That's when a man needs to be
1: drunk the most. Ed's turn arrives, but he sees Liana Mormont and a pair of her guard approach. Ed backs away, extends a hand towards the barrels in invitation. Apologies, my lady.
0: Your courtesy is appreciated, but unnecessary. Tonight, I'm just a soldier, like everyone else here. <coughs>
4: Soldier?
0: Does the notion of a woman in battle amuse you?
6: Some of the fiercest warriors I've ever known were women. But I have salted beef in my pockets, older than you. What do you know about
7: battle? You're addressing lady, Leonor, of House Moment, daughter of Mage Moment, lady of Bear Island.
4: And that means you have to do whatever this little girl tells you to do?
6: Beyond the wall, it's strength we follow.
0: And how did that work out for you?
1: Podrick can't stop a small chuckle escaping his lips. Tormund glares at him, but Liana actually gives Podrick an appreciative smile. Davos hastily steps in and puts an arm around Tormund to usher him away.
2: Forgive him, my lady. He hasn't spent much time among the Highborn.
1: Davos, Tormund and Ed are turned to depart, but Liana is not finished.
0: That's probably for the best. The Highborn have everything handed to them. And it makes them soft. As I understand it, there's nothing soft about life north of the wall. I'm glad to have the free folk fighting beside us.
1: Tormund is taken aback, but manages a nod of thanks. As she departs, Liana steals a quick glance over her shoulder at Podrick. He blushes and quickly turns his attention to filling his cup. As Davos, Tormund, and Ed walk to their table, a blonde serving girl sidles up to Tormund.
0: I've never met a wildling before.
1: This isn't just any wildling. This is Tormund Giantsbane, king of the wildlings. A second serving girl appears beside the first.
4: King,
6: I.
1: That's right. Tormund claps a heavy hand on Davos's shoulder. And this is my most trusted advisor. Tormund leans in towards Davos.
6: Do you want the blonde or the brunette?
2: Oh, no. An old man like me has to keep his rest up. If you'll excuse me.
1: Davos makes a hurried exit. Tormund reluctantly turns to Ed. Then how about Ned? Ed.
6: Ed. You've never met a wildling.
1: How about a Lord
6: Commander of the Night's Watch?
1: The two serving girls smile. For perhaps the first time in his life, so does Ed. The hound sits alone, eating from a plate piled high with chicken. The soldiers at the other end of his table know him by reputation and have left a precautionary distance between them. Sansa approaches.
6: Fly away, little bird. I'm eating.
1: Sansa takes a seat. The hound sighs and puts down his chicken.
6: You're going to talk, aren't you? Is there nowhere I can escape a stark chirping in my ear?
8: In Winterfell. Probably not the easiest place.
6: Easier than it used to be, though.
8: Brienne told me about your encounter in the Vale.
6: Did she know? Did she tell you how she smashed my head in with a rock and threw me off a mountain to die?
8: No, but Arya did. More than once, and in great detail.
6: Aye, <laughs> I bet she did. She's got ice water on her veins, that one. Hard to believe the little bird and the cold-blooded killer are sisters.
8: Arya and I are more alike than you could ever know.
6: Why? Because you both survived terrible men?
8: Because we both buried them.
6: Your brother broke the Bolton bastard. Your sister slit Littlefinger's throat. They say you poisoned Joffrey, but I don't believe it for a second.
1: The hound reaches out and grabs Sansa's wrists, twisting them to expose the palms of her hands.
6: You might fool everyone else, little bird, but not me. Your hands are too clean to be a real killers."
1: His point made, the Hound releases Sansa's wrists, but Sansa shocks him by grabbing hold of his. "'I'm
8: not as big as you, or as strong as you. I've never swung a sword and I won't be taking to the battlefield when the Night King and his army arrive. But if you tried to harm me right now, right here, what do you think would happen?'
1: The Hound looks about the room and sees Stark soldiers in every direction. He sees the men at the other end of the table, turned towards them and ready to spring into action. He sees Brienne watching him from her table. In short, he sees Sansa's point.
8: You told me once that the world was full of killers. Do you remember?
1: Aye, and I told you you'd never be one of them.
8: And you were right. I just command an awful lot of them.
1: Sansa releases the hound's wrists and calmly stands.
8: I'll leave you to your supper.
1: The hound watches Sansa leave, then notices Brienne looking at him with a smirk on her face. The hound growls to himself and returns to his chicken. Sharing her amusement with Podrick, Brienne is about to start in on her supper, when she spots Jamie walking into the room with his guards. She watches as he joins the line for food. You should go talk to him. About what? Anything. Anything. You could tell him about the dream you had. Podrick,
0: I told you that in confidence.
1: They return to their supper, but Brienne keeps catching Podrick sneaking quick, amused glances her way.
4: What? Nothing. Podrick, what? It's just, I don't think I've ever seen you scared before. Scared of what? Of Sir Jamie, and your, you
0: know, feelings. Don't be absurd. I know you too well, my lady. If I am a little on edge, and I'm not saying I am, it's because we're about to do battle with an army of the dead, not because of Jamie Bloody Lannister.
4: All the more reason to go talk to him. If the worst happens,
1: and he rejects you, it won't matter because you'll both probably be dead soon anyway. Brienne scoffs and makes a deliberate effort to focus on her food, but her expression gradually changes as she considers the wisdom behind Podrick's fatalism. Having collected his supper, Jamie searches for a seat. His guards, Eric and Aaron, have no trouble, a bench full of stark soldiers obligingly making space to accommodate them at their table. Jamie spots a free space, but when he approaches, a pair of soldiers shuffle down to close the space— shooting Jamie death-stairs, so there's no danger of his missing their intent. Jamie shrugs and tries another table, but the same shunning repeats itself. Finally he reaches the table occupied by the Queen's Council and a group of Dothraki. There are two open spaces at the end, one on either side of the table, the first beside Grey Worm and the second beside Jorah. Jamie moves to fill the first, but Grey Worm takes his helmet from the table and places it on the bench. The seat is taken. Until now, the eyes of the room had been surreptitious in their study of Jamie's search for a seat. After Grey Worm's snub, all pretense at discretion is abandoned, and the room watches eagerly to see how this will play out. Jamie glares at Grey Worm, but then does his best to laugh it off. (laughs) Very well. He moves to the spot across the table, but Jorah swings round and drops a heavy boot on the bench. I think not, Kingslayer. Kingslayer?
7: I'd hoped we could at least keep things civil, but I guess I didn't realise that eating with me was beneath the dignity of Sir Jorah, the slaver of Bear Island, or Lord Varys, the cockless. What did I do? And you? You I don't know. I am Unsullied. Unsullied? I'm afraid Cockless is already taken. My name is Greyworm.
1: Yes, that'll do, I suppose.
8: Sir so Jamie, you can sit with us.
1: Jamie looks briefly in Brienne's direction, but immediately returns his attention to Greyworm and Jorah. It's all right, Brienne.
7: I seem to have lost my appetite. Here, a moment. You eat it. Maybe it'll soak up some of that wine you're guzzling.
1: Jorah looks shamefacedly down at his cup as Jamie stalks away. Eric and Aaron move to follow.
7: Don't get up. I can find my chambers just fine
1: by myself. Jamie's exit is stalled by Tormund and Ed passing through the doorway, each with a serving girl on their arm. Jamie impatiently weaves his way past and exits the great hall. Jamie strides down the corridor and opens the door to his chambers. Bronn sits in a chair against the opposite wall, a loaded crossbow pointed at Jamie's heart. Shut your mouth, close the door, and keep your hand where I can see it. Podrick is tucking into his supper, but Brienne is clearly in her own world, pushing her food around the plate, but eating nothing. Beric, plate and cup in hand sits down beside Podrick. Good evening, friends. Podrick nods and smiles, but Brienne gives no sign she's even aware of Beric's presence. Beric nudges Podrick in the ribs. If I'm not very much mistaken you, Master Podrick. I do believe you have an admirer. Podrick follows Beric's eyeline. Liana sits several tables away, watching Podrick with starry eyes. She can't be more than twelve, or thirteen!
7: Not suggesting you take her to bed, lad.
1: All the girl wants is a smile. Reluctantly, Podrick flashes a quick smile. Liana blushes and looks away. There. That had better be the end of it.
7: Don't be so quick to step on other people's dreams, Master
1: Podrick. That smile cost you nothing, if the Lord of Light should decide it necessary to take Young Lady Mormont from us tonight then at least she'll die with a heart full of romance. We should all be so blessed. Suddenly, Brienne gets to her feet. Something amiss, my lady? Without a word, Brienne turns and strides from the great hall. Beric looks at Podrick, his brow furrowed in confusion, but Podrick just smiles to himself and returns to his supper. I assume my sister sent you?
5: Queen Cersei. Sends her regards. Tyrion? Not yet. Thought I'd put age before beauty for a change. Is that... The crossbow Tyrion used to kill your father. A bit over the top for my liking, but your sister insisted.
1: Jamie nods to a flagon on a nearby table. May I? Bron reveals a cup in his spare hand. He turns it upside down to demonstrate its emptiness.
7: Aren't you worried about your aim?
1: If I had anything
5: left to learn about holding my drink, I learned it keeping your brother company in his
7: cups. Everything he did for you, and still you betray him.
5: I remember this one night in particular, right before the first scrap with the Starks, when you were off getting captured. We were playing a drinking game, and your brother ended up telling us the story of his first wife, and what your father had done to her. What you let your father have done to her.
7: That was a long time ago. My father. Your father was a cunt. So's
5: your sister, and so are you. That little shit next door's the only Lannister worth a damn, and he had to pay a total fucking stranger to keep him safe because he didn't have anyone else.
7: As you were so quick to remind me, I was Rob Stark's prisoner. I couldn't be there for him. And you won't be there this time either. Jamie
5: fucking Lannister, a cunt to the very end.
7: Whatever Cersei's paying you, we'll beat it.
5: I don't make deals with dead men. And the way I see it, everyone in this place is dead already. A few hours won't make much difference to you and your brother, but it'll make a hell of a difference to me and my
7: purse. You've seen fast what a dragon can do. We have two of them. We've got ten thousand Dothraki screamers. Eight thousand unsullied.
5: We've got—' "'You've got a sliver of a chance, eye, I'll grant you that. "'But all my life I've been a betting man, backing one side or the other, "'and I learnt a long time ago that only fools and rich men laid all on a
7: long shot.' "'And what happens next, when the dead come marching down to King's Landing? "'All the gold in Westeros won't save you then. "'But it will buy me passage across the narrow sea.' And when all Seven Kingdoms have fallen to the Night King, and he decides to turn his armies east?
5: Then I'll find some place else. I know you Lannisters go your whole lives believing you're something special, but the world's full of lords and ladies with too much money and too many enemies. It's a dependable line of work, killing people.
7: Sellsword, bodyguard, commander of the City Watch, anointed knight, and now assassin for hire. I can certainly see the through-line. Then you know it's nothing personal. Jamie slowly lowers his hand. Only once before, once in my entire life, did I beg anyone for anything.
1: Jamie gets down onto his knees. Bronn looks equal parts impressed and annoyed. But I'm begging you now.
7: Spare my brother. Take my head back to Sarsi on a serving tray if you must, but let. Tyrion, live. Please. Let him live.
1: Bronn and Jamie stare at one another. Almost imperceptibly, Bronn begins to lower his crossbow. Bronn's eyes snap towards the door. Jamie begins to rise, but the door is already swinging open.
0: Sir Jamie, I. Brienne,
1: no! Brienne looks down in confusion at the arrow, lodged in her heart. Her gaze slides towards Jamie's face, as though hoping to find an explanation there. Jamie? Brienne crumples to the floor as Bronn leaps to his feet and rushes through the open door. He shoves his dirk into the ribs of an oncoming guard and sprints down the corridor. Bursting from the room across the hall, the blonde serving girl joins Bronn's escape, leaving her bloody handiwork in her wake. In the doorway, Ed thrashes wildly in a pool of his own blood. He clutches at his throat with both hands, but the slash is too wide and the gush of blood too heavy. Another door opens, and Tormund staggers into the corridor, holding the side of his head, blood spurting between his fingers. She
5: got my fucking ear off!
1: Behind Tormund, just inside the room, the second serving girl lies sprawled on her back, a blooded knife in her hand, her neck bent at an impossible angle. Jamie cradles Brienne's head in his arms, his eyes filling with tears.
7: Brienne! Brienne! Look at me, Brienne!
1: For a few brief seconds, Brienne is able to focus on Jamie's face. She raises a hand and pushes it through his hair. She smiles weakly, and then she's gone. Jamie pulls her lifeless body tight to his chest. Circe sits at the desk once occupied by her father in the chambers of the king's hand. The white book of the king's guard lies open before her, turned to Jamie's page. Circe traces the last line with her finger. She lifts a quill and dips it into the inkpot, but her hand hesitates over the parchment. Come. Circe lays down the quill and closes the white book. Uh, Forgive me, Your Grace, but you have a visitor.
3: Is there some reason why you cannot handle the matter yourself?
2: He was rather insistent. He
7: has travelled a long way
1: to see you. From the Citadel, in fact. Cersei's interest is piqued. She nods and Kyburn opens the door for her visitor. Archmaester Ebrose enters and bows.
2: Your Grace. Thank you for agreeing to see me.
1: Ebrose realises Kyburn lingers at the door.
2: I would speak with the Queen in private.
1: Kaiburn is more amused than offended by Ebrose's clear disdain. He looks to Cersei.
3: You may leave us, Maester Kyburn, but don't wander too far.
1: The Archmaester won't be staying long. Kaiburn bows, shoots Ebrose a wry smirk, and departs. Without waiting to be invited, Ebrose takes a seat before the desk. His presumption does not go unnoticed.
2: I did wonder why the Citadel had yet to receive the Crown's application for a new Grand Maester. You do know that the man was stripped of his chain?
3: Kyban has proved himself more useful in the short time he's been at court than Paisel managed in forty years.
2: We were all very sad to hear of the Grand Maester's passing. Such a tragic end. Stabbed to death over a purse full of coppers? Did the gold cloaks ever apprehend his killer? I'm afraid not. And to think the Grand Maester should meet his ignominious end on the very same day as the tragedy of the Great Sept? In fact, had he missed his ill fated meeting with the cut purse's blade, he would likely have been in attendance when the explosion occurred and so met his end anyway. The gods certainly have a morbid sense of humour. Imagine, a cache of wildfire sits undisturbed beneath the great sept for almost twenty years. How many thousands, millions perhaps, must have walked those floors in all that time, never knowing they were a matter of feet from certain destruction? That disaster should strike on the very day, the very hour, when so many men and women of influence were in attendance. Well, it's almost too terrible a coincidence to believe. What exactly is it you want, Archmaester? I seek the Queen's justice. The Citadel was recently robbed of several priceless artefacts, and I would ask the Crown to see that they are retrieved.
3: What kind of artefacts, precisely? Books. Books? you come all this way to complain about a couple of
2: overdue library books. The Citadel does not run a lending service, Your Grace, and if we did, these particular books would be unavailable for loan, I assure you. They are available only to those of Grand Maester rank and above, and are kept under lock and key in our most restricted section.
3: Not that restricted, clearly. Who took them?
2: A young novice by the name of Samuel Tarly, son of Randall Tarly, who, I believe, is sworn to House Lannister.
3: He was, until Daenerys Targaryen had her dragon burn him
2: alive. I see. Well, perhaps his heir, a boy named Dickon. Him too, I'm afraid. Well, perhaps under the circumstance a more direct approach is in order i understand tarley is a close friend and confidante of the self-styled king in the north wherever this john snow may be it stands to reason that's where you'll find our thief john snow has bent the knee to daenerys targaryen they're camped together at winterfell i believe is that a fact my 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 not many know this but I actually preceded the late Grand Maester in service to House Targaryen. I am not too proud to admit that my somewhat expedited rise through the ranks and election to archmeister was down in no small part to the personal interest and generous patronage of his grace. How fascinating! And now, the daughter has returned to reclaim the father's throne, has she?
3: The Targaryen dynasty ended twenty years ago, when my husband caved in the dragon prince's chest on the ruby ford.
2: We all know that was the end of the Targaryen story, except, it seems, for Daenerys.
3: Perhaps you should visit Winterfell, and ask Daenerys if she will run your errands for you. Best be quick about it, though.
2: I met your father a few times over the years, you know, in the course of our respective duties can't say i ever liked the man very much but he at least comported himself with the dignity of his office and always demonstrated appreciation of my own what has become of the world when showing proper respect is too much to expect even of a queen
3: respect is a trap the old and vulnerable set to keep the young and ambitious from devouring them the world is full of self-important old men and their clandestine little clubs the names may change But nothing else ever does. They covet their secrets like magpies. They fool their followers into believing they're in possession of some higher knowledge. They desperately cling to the illusion of power. Long after age and impotency have overcome them. I've been surrounded by men like this my entire life. And never, not even once, have I been remotely impressed.
2: Well... It appears you are your father's daughter after all.
3: Yes, that's usually the sort of thing they say. I do hope you're not going to quote from the seven pointed star next.
1: Ebrose studies Circe, then gets to his feet and takes a step closer to her desk.
2: I thought perhaps your man in the north, if he's at Winterfell anyway, could he not kill two birds with one stone and. How do you know about that? The iron bank is in the money business the faceless men are in the assassination business the citadel is in the information business and with the fate of the world balanced on a knife's edge as it is right now business is if you'll pardon the cliché booming
3: you already knew fine well daenerys has allied herself with john snow
1: ebrose raises his eyebrows in confirmation the spectre of a smug smile on his lips.
2: You would be astonished at the things we know.
1: Though she portrays no outward emotion, it's clear Cersei's mind is reappraising the situation at a furious rate.
3: Perhaps I failed to appreciate the true import of the wrong perpetrated against you. The Citadel has served as the memory of Westeros for generations. To steal from the Citadel is to steal from the very country itself.
2: A beautiful sentiment. Wonderfully phrased, Your Grace. I'm so glad we could come to an understanding.
1: As am I. Kyburn will show you out. As though summoned by the mere mention of his name, Kyburn slithers into the room. Ebrose looks at Kyburn as though he were something foul he'd stepped in.
2: I could find my own way to the stables, thank you. Stables? Oh, no!
3: You can't leave so soon. You must leave the citadel so rarely. Why don't you stay a while and enjoy the many sights the capital has to offer? Kylan can serve as your guide.
1: Ebrose's confidence finally starts to crack as he recognizes the truth behind Circe's pleasant tone. The perilousness of his situation begins to dawn.
2: If only I had the time, Your Grace, but I really must be getting back, I'm afraid. You understand? Heavy is the head, and and, and and what have you.
1: Ebrose turns pale as snow at the sight of the mountain filling the doorway behind kyburn I'm afraid I must insist. A shaking, terrified Ebrose is escorted from the room by kyburn and the mountain. Circe takes a sip of wine, a satisfied smile at the corners of her mouth. John and Daenerys continue their reconnaissance, following the coastline northward. The mountainous terrain suddenly falls away beneath them and is replaced by a vast plain of ice. John points across the plain in triumph. Rising into the sky, its tallest turrets lost in the clouds, the ice palace of the White Walkers looms against a dark horizon. Drogon and Rhaegal land on the plateau 500 yards from the palace, and John and Daenerys descend to the ice. John draws Longclaw and they begin towards the palace. As they approach the steps, Daenerys reaches out and gives John's hand a quick squeeze. He returns the pressure and flashes a reassuring, though not terribly convincing, smile. At the top of the steps, John suddenly stops in his tracks.
7: Do you wish something?
1: Daenerys listens. In the distance, where the plateau meets the base of the mountains, a small rock slide of ice raises a thin powder of snow, but all else is still and silent. Daenerys shakes her head. Jon shrugs it off as a trick of his imagination, but has barely taken another step before stopping again.
7: There! You don't hear that!
1: Again, they look out across the plateau, listening.
8: I don't hear anything but the wind.
1: John is not convinced, but not hearing another sound, he turns and walks with Daenerys through the enormous doorway and enters the palace. They discover to their surprise that the palace appears to be composed of a single cavernous chamber. The ceiling, hundreds of feet above them, is open to the sky at the far end, providing them just enough light by which to navigate. The walls are covered in countless openings, like the tunnels of an ant's nest or the chambers of a beehive. The apparent depths of these pitch-black tunnels, as well as the vast open space all around them, seems utterly incompatible with the dimensions of the palace as seen from the outside.
0: This isn't possible.
1: Regarding the closed doors with grim disquiet, John and Daenerys silently reach the same decision. Nowhere to go but onwards. Tentatively, they begin to walk forward and to their left. Suddenly the ground before them breaks up into a series of columns, each column rising at an independent rate. John pulls Daenerys back just in time and watches as the columns keep rising to meet the ceiling high above their heads. Now facing a solid wall of ice, Jon and Daenerys turn and walk towards the opposite wall, but again the ground breaks into columns that rush up to block their path. In this reordered space, Jon and Daenerys find themselves standing at the beginning of one long corridor stretching away towards the far end of the chamber. They look at one another for encouragement, then begin their long walk. After several minutes of continuous walking, the walls composed of columns fall away on either side into a yawning pit of darkness, rendering the corridor a catwalk leading out over the abyss to a circular island of ice. The island is bare save for a semicircle of black candles mounted in spires of ice. As Jon and Daenerys approach, the candles roar to life, the blue flames gradually resolving into two moving images. On the left, Drogon. On the right, Rhaegal. Jon and Daenerys watch the flickering images, mesmerized. Jon looks at Daenerys, then back to the flames.
7: I don't understand. What does this mean? I don't know. Danny.
0: I don't know Jon. You're looking at me like I should, but I don't.
1: As Jon and Daenerys watch on in macabre fascination, the flames between the two images begin to contort, finally resolving into the face of the Night King. The eye of the flame zooms out to become a panorama, revealing the Night King to be riding atop Viserion. Daenerys looks physically sick. She steps forward, holds out a hand to the flame, to her zombified child. Daenerys is just inches from the candles when suddenly the Night King's face seems to take on a third dimension and a white walker lunges through the flames. Daenerys reels backwards, Jon just barely manages to bring up Longclaw and block the downward stroke of the walker's blade. The white walker strikes Jon across the face with its free hand and Jon crumples to the ground. He rolls over, expecting the attack to continue, but to his surprise and confusion, the White Walker has turned away. Its focus is trained exclusively upon Daenerys. The White Walker calmly stalks towards her, each measured step bringing him closer to his quarry. The Walker raises its sword. John charges into it from behind, sending it careering off the side of the platform and into the black void surrounding the Island of Ice. John rushes to Daenerys, but her attention is focused on the flames. John, look! The images of Drogon and Rhaegal have both zoomed out to reveal their surroundings. The two dragons in the flames stand exactly where John and Daenerys just left their physical counterparts moments ago. These images are showing Daenerys and Jon, their dragons, in real time, which makes the sight of a horde of whites thundering across the plateau towards the dragons all the more terrifying. Go! Jon and Daenerys turn and sprint back the way they came. As they run, the walls of ice on either side plummet downwards, the columns of which each wall is composed descending at different rates to create a chessboard of irregular platforms. John and Daenerys are too preoccupied to notice the openings in the palace walls begin to fill with white walkers, their malevolent gaze tracking the fleeing intruders. As John and Daenerys near the end of the catwalk and the entrance to the palace, the catwalk itself breaks into individual columns. John finds himself thrust upwards, Daenerys reaching up a hand despairingly as he rises up and away from her towards the ceiling.
3: John, Keep
1: going! Daenerys runs for the entryway, but two walkers arrive on rising platforms to block her path. Daenerys jumps across a gaping chasm onto the next column. Far above, Jon leaps from column to column, every one of them in the process of ascending or descending at a dizzying rate until he is close enough to hurl himself down onto the white walkers stalking Daenerys. As Jon gets to his feet, the column on which he and the White Walkers stand plummets downwards and they disappear into the darkness below. Daenerys shrieks in surprise as an ice javelin pierces the ground not two feet from where she stands. She looks up to see another pair of walkers approaching from above, the columns before them arranging themselves into a convenient staircase leading directly down towards Daenerys. She turns and runs as best she can across the irregular platforms of ice. Far below, John blocks and parries and succeeds in skewering one of the white walkers, but the resultant explosion of ice momentarily impairs his vision. He swings Longclaw blindly, striking nothing but air. When he is able to see clearly again, he is shocked to discover the remaining White Walker already several columns away, navigating its way towards Daenerys. Jon gives chase. Daenerys is almost at the great doors of ice, when the ground upon which she stands drops 100 feet in a matter of seconds. Daenerys desperately looks around for a means of ascent, but finds none. The column, immediately next to her own, is in the process of descending, a white walker glowering down at her from its top. The walker hurls another ice javelin at her, but again Daenerys throws herself out of its way and the lance buries itself in the ice. John leaps from column to column but is still losing ground on his walker. Seeing his path will soon be closed by a rising wall of ice, John launches himself across open space and onto the column the walker has just left. He lands with the sickening crack of breaking ribs. The white walker pauses long enough to cast a backward glance in Jon's direction. Even though Jon is in no position to defend himself, the walker turns away and continues on its beeline towards Daenerys. As the column descends to Daenerys' level, the white walker it bears steps casually onto Daenerys's own. It swipes at her with its sword. Daenerys stumbles backwards out of reach but finds herself on the precipice, a bottomless blackness below and the nearest column 50 feet away. In desperation, she looks to arm herself and grabs the handle of the ice spear jutting from the ground. Daenerys snatches back her hands. Her palms are red and raw, the top layers of skin ripped away and stuck to the frozen handle. Recognising she has nowhere left to run, the White Walker closes in for the killing blow. It grips its sword with both hands and attempts to skewer Daenerys, stabbing at the air only a fraction of a second after she snakes away. Daenerys dodges aside and the sword buries itself into the side of the column that rushes up to fill the space beside her own. Daenerys kicks out at the White Walker. It releases the hilt of the sword and stumbles backwards, giving Daenerys just enough time to grab the hilt in both hands as the column in which it is embedded continues to rise. Daenerys is lifted up and away from the recovered White Walker. As soon as the column delivers her before the palace doors, Daenerys lets go of the naked ice, whimpering at the pain in her palms. She barely has time to find her feet before the White Walker that Jon was pursuing is upon her. A second walker arrives a heartbeat later. John hurls himself from his column, plummets fifty feet through the air, and barrels the first white walker to the ground. John hauls himself up, and he and the second white walker duel, John quickly beaten back to the edge of the platform. Looking past his own white walker, he sees the other has returned its attention to Daenerys. John slips and only just manages to block the walker's swing. In the same motion, he reaches up and grabs a knife of ice from the white walker's belt and plunges it into the walker's stomach. The walker looks at the knife without reaction, then at John with a look that could almost pass for derision. With a roar of effort, Jon drops Longclaw, grabs the knife's handle in both hands and uses all his weight to pull the White Walker forward at the exact moment a column rushes upwards, smashing the White Walker's head into a million fine shards, its body following half a second later. Jon grabs Longclaw and hurries to Daenerys's side. The White Walker scythes its sword in a great horizontal arc intended to cut John in two through his middle. John slides on his knees, arching his back so his face passes under the oncoming blade by mere inches and in one smooth motion stands, turns and swings Longclaw in a two-handed slash. John helps Daenerys to her feet. She points behind him into the palace. Dozens of columns rise simultaneously from the depths every one of them bearing a pack of screaming, snarling whites. Over and again, John and Daenerys throw themselves against the slabs of opaque ice, and closer and closer come the horde of undead at their backs. Daenerys suddenly stops, her head tilted as though listening to something at the very limit of her hearing. She holds out a hand to halt John in his efforts.
7: Wait! What
1: is it? Daenerys hooks her arm through Jon's, and drags him away from the door and towards the oncoming whites.
7: Are you mad?
1: The words are barely past his lips. When the doors of the palace explode, Jon and Daenerys drop to the ground barely a heartbeat before the air is filled with a lethal barrage of ice. Chunks of shattered door fizz through the gloom. The bigger blocks send whites careening like skittles into the abyss, the smaller shards shredding their rotten bodies like shrapnel.
3: John! John! Get up! We need to move!
0: Get up!
1: Drogon and Rhaegal fill the doorway, the walls of the palace seeming to rattle with the force of the dragon's triumphant roars. Jon and Daenerys mount up and Drogon and Rhaegal launch themselves from the top of the steps. As they climb, Jon and Daenerys look back to see the horde of whites they saw in the candle flames racing across the ice towards the palace. There they meet a score of white walkers emerging into the light. The walkers turn their heads skyward. In an instant, a cover of thick black storm clouds converges over the plateau and envelops Jon and Daenerys. They try to protect their faces behind their shielding arms, flinching away from the evil winds whipping razor-sharp blades of ice. A second later, and visibility is gone completely, any sense of direction lost absolutely. The two dragons collide in the air. Drogon manages to flap his great wings and regain his equilibrium, but his smaller brother drops like a rock.
3: Jon!
1: Daenerys cannot reorientate herself, let alone find Jon and Rhaegal in the depths of the black cloud bank. Jon flattens himself to Rhaegal as the dragon careens downwards. He barely has time to blink between their breaking below the clouds and the unforgiving ground rushing up to meet them. John's world turns black. The enormous plume of snow and ice raised by the crash hangs in the still air for an eternity. When it finally begins to fall, the fine crystals of ice settle on a broken Rhaegal. The dragon lies flat on his stomach. One wing twisted sickeningly beneath his body. Ragel tries to stand, but his back is broken, and he can only barely raise his head. Twenty yards away, John bursts from a snowbank and claws himself free. He too tries to stand. Looking down, he sees snapped bone jutting through the exposed skin of his right shin. John limps to Ragel the dragon following him pitifully with its eyes and places a hand on Rhaegal's snout. It only takes a quick glance for John to understand the dragon is beyond his help. Across the plateau, the White Walkers watch on as the Battalion of Whites spot their quarry and begin to run straight for Rhaegal and John. John turns to face the impending undead. He removes his bulky and restrictive coat, draws Longclaw and takes his stance as best he can on one leg. The first of the whites reaches him, and John bursts into action. He is soon surrounded by a pile of dispatched undead. He sucks at the air greedily, but another group is soon upon him. Again he hacks and slashes his way through, and again he emerges safely on the other side. He bends at the waist, almost too weak to stand, and stumbles off balance. He vomits into the snow, the pain in his leg blinding. He cannot keep this up forever. And now another crowd of whites, twice the size of the last, is almost here. Just as they arrive, Rhaegal manages with the very last ounce of strength in his body to lurch forward on his one working wing and crush the wave of undead beneath his bulk. John watches helplessly as the next whites to arrive swarm like ants over Ragel, hacking and clawing and biting at the dragon's hide. John turns and half limps, half lumbers away. He manages to put some distance between himself and the whites, reaching a natural elevation and gratefully seizing the higher ground. He turns to find the chasing pack has swelled in number another wave of whites pours from unseen cracks and hidden crevices in the mountainside and joins their number to the first. John sighs, a strange calm coming over him. He wipes the sweat from his brow, reaffirms his grip on Longclaw's hilt and takes the last stance he will ever take. Drogon descends from the sky and slams down onto the ice between Jon and the onrushing army of White's. Jon lowers Longclaw, relief washing over his face at the undead advance halted in its tracks. Daenerys glowers down imperiously at the Whites, but then her features falter and crack as she looks beyond them to the blooded and broken body of Rhaegal. Shock, confusion, anger and sorrow chase one another across her face. She turns and locks eyes with Jon, her lover, her nephew, the rightful heir to her throne. He looks back, expectant, waiting for Daenerys to say the word and Drogon to burn the undead to ash and bones, but one second slowly, agonizingly, becomes two, then becomes three, becomes four, time stretches, dilates, the world and everything in it falls away. All that exists is Jon and Daenerys, Daenerys and Jon, and a great white frozen distance between them. Finally, Daenerys's jaw sets, her face hardens, and she gives Drogon her command. V'Lud! <laughs> Drogan obeys. He takes three long steps and launches himself up into the sky. John watches in horror as the woman he loves flies away, abandoning him to certain death. The crowd of whites resume their charge. John raises Longclaw with grim resignation. He manages to fight off the first few to reach him, but the next take him off his feet, and he too is soon lost beneath the swarming undead. Daenerys cannot keep the emotion back any longer, and she breaks down into great racking sobs, but cannot, will not, permit herself even the briefest of backward glances.
0: podcast was entirely a work of fan fiction. It was unofficial, unaffiliated, and unauthorized. Neither the podcast, nor any individual involved in its production, is now, nor has ever been, in any way associated with HBO, Game of Thrones, George R.R. R. Martin, or the Song of Ice and Fire book series. The podcast was, is now, and shall always be, entirely without profit. Neither the podcast directly, nor its makers indirectly, Generate or receive any form of revenue or financial restitution that might otherwise accrue to the rightful copyright holders. The preceding podcast was entirely a work of fan fiction. We hope you enjoyed it.